You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Well, good morning, everyone. You guys sound like the rain sounds outside. It's a dreary day, and we're inside nice and... Well, listen, praise God for the rain, right? Because you know our neighboring states, they are in a drought. So it's really neat to see that has provided rain. So if you got up and you felt like, man, it's raining again, just recognize, oh, I forgot one thing. If you're new with us, the uh, kids up to second grade can now be released to children's church so that they can continue to worship um, in their uh, classrooms in the back. So back to the rain. If you got up and you said, gosh, it's raining again, Recognize that the Lord, he never spares water. So it's purposeful why we have rain. And you can praise God that there are saints who needs the rain that the Lord has provided. While Nina and, and Ben were singing, and praise God for them. Good to see them back uh, leading worship again. But I am a child of God, right? What kept reverberating through my mind is... First uh, John, I think it's chapter 3, where John says, What manner of love is this that we should be called children of God? And that is what we are, he says. And the writers trying to capture John's excitement puts a point there. What manner of love that we should be called the children of God? Well, let's have a task this morning, and the task is to present to you Uh, The theology of church leadership, as the elders of Genesis Community Church have determined, is the will of God for not only our church, but we believe it to be the will of God. And so the title is uh, Theology of Church Leadership, Theology, the Study of God, right? And so anytime we're in the Word of God, we're really studying God. So let's just say this is the the, uh, study of God as it relates to leadership in the church because ultimately what we want to get out of our sermons our bible studies our our devotional is lord what is your will what is it that you have created and we want to connect with that and so this morning we're going to try to connect with the will of god as it relates to leadership in the church please pray with me as we get started Lord, thank you for bringing us to this moment. Uh, We join with all the saints everywhere who call on the name of the Lord out of a pure. Today are worshiping you, Lord, in spirit and in truth. And we recognize that uh, a great part, a very important part of our worship is to hear and heed the word of God being taught. And so as we approach this, Lord, we commit it to you. Uh, trusting that, as is commonly said here, that you will do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is kind of like a topical sermon, if you will, uh, but topical doesn't mean that, you know, we, we bend the scriptures to make a point. Topical sim- simply means we're going to go several places to address a biblical topic, and that topic is uh, the theology of church leadership. Now, in speaking about church leadership, I must begin with the obvious. And let me say obvious to those of us who accept that the Lord is sovereign. The obvious is this, 
God is the ultimate leader. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about uh, the secular world or whether you're talking about the church. God is the ultimate leader. In, in regards to the secular world, Romans chapter 13, quite a passage. I love the chapter, but Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 2. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authority. For there is no authority except from God. There's no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Therefore, whoever re resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So, very plainly, God mediates his rule, mediates his rule over all the kingdoms, all the countries, all of the cities, all of the states, all of the town leaders. God mediates his rule through them. And what's fascinating about that is he mediates his rule through these men and women who may not and often do not have any regard for God at all. But nevertheless, the authority that they have, that authority is invested to them by God. And man, that could be a serious sermon because there are a lot of questions surrounding that, but just we can settle with the fact that God is the ultimate leader and he's leading the world through these civil leaders. So God mandates, right? He, he, he mandates that the church, and everyone really, but certainly the church, that we recognize that we are to be in, in, in subjection to the leaders of the world. But he also mediates his rule of the church through leaders as well. He leads the church, as it were, through leaders, and we're going to be talking about those leaders uh, today. But unlike secular rulers, God expects that the leaders of the church, they are qualified by certain characteristics of behavior and knowledge of the word and the will of God. Relative to, to, to everyone, right? Recognizing this, this leadership in the church and what should be uh, your role if you're not a leader. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be uh, unprofitable for you. But obey, he says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. Now, before get, we're going to come back to that verse in the end, but before I go any further with that, I want to look at just the, the, the history of leadership as we look at the Old Testament and see how the Lord mediated his rulership through people. And then we'll look at church leadership in the New Testament, particularly the terms that are used to define and describe church leaders. And then finally, we'll take a look at leadership and, and uh, spiritual gifts. And then I'll end with uh, maybe some application and, and just connecting, connecting it all. So that's kind of the outline. Leadership, Old Testament, leadership, church, and then spiritual uh, leadership and spiritual gifts. Before Israel was ever established, right, 
God drew certain men to himself, and he led people through these men. Think about these folks. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Samuel, and all the judges. Even prior to the nation being a nation, we recognize that God was ruling, leading, mediating that rule and lead through, uh, through people he drew them to himself, taught them about him, and then worked his will to people through the, those uh, who were leaders. What's interesting even about describing those leaders in the Old Testament is that some of the very same words that are used to describe Old Testament leaders are used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, to describe the Old Testament leaders. I might have said that so, New Testament terminology used in the Septuagint to describe Old Testament leaders is what I'm trying to say. So, you see the continuity from Old Testament through New Testament. And, of course, you will because there's only one God. And there's always going to be continuity with God because he does not and will not change. As the Lord established the nation Israel, he established them under a theocracy. And essentially, a theocracy is a, a kingdom that's ruled by God. God is the king. He's the ultimate, and by God's laws. So that Israel was not uh, secular spiritual. They were just secular spiritual together. Had one set of laws, and all of those laws, in essence, were, were, uh, were spiritual. But he, he led through people. Psalm 77, 20 says, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So while God, once again, is the ultimate leader, he ruled through these chosen men. Perhaps the greatest of these is, uh, is Moses himself. The Lord said to Moses uh, in Exodus 32, 24, he says, but go now, lead the people where I told you. Moses later shared his leadership under the, the guidance of Jethro, his father-in-law, who, who encouraged Moses to select men to lead denominations of men. And then he said to Moses, you are to be the people's representative before God. So Moses, if you will, went out and he actually created an eldership in Israel. And we know that God recognized this eldership because in, in or this, this leadership um, of elders because in Exodus 24.1, we read the Lord saying to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and those were the high priests and the priests at that time, and 70 of the elders of Israel. But you further see the rulership of God through Moses through a sad scenario, right? Deuteronomy 32, 50, 51. I'll read it, and then, I, if, and then we'll give some explanation. The Lord says to Moses, Then die on the mountain where you ascend, and be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, died on the mount, or 
and was gathered to his people because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zen because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. Israel being rebels, angry. And if you, as you read the Old Testament, especially as they're leaving um, uh, Egypt, they're quarreling constantly against God and against Moses. This particular time, they're quarreling, but they need water. There's no water. The Lord calls Moses to himself, and the Lord says to Moses, I want you to speak to the rock, and the rock will give water. Moses goes to the people, and remember, he's angry. He's upset. He starts calling them rebels, which they were. But he struck the rock twice instead of speaking to the rock. That's a simple uh, thing, right? But that caused Moses not to enter the promised land. Because Moses was representing God. And he was representing God before the people. And even though the people were not being righteous and acting the way they ought to act, Moses was responsible always for acting in a way that lifted the glory of God. And he failed in that moment. But the Lord did give the people water. He blessed them. But Moses was not allowed to see the promised land. And he died upon on the mountain. After Moses' death, Joshua, who was a tribal leader, Joshua took over. He succeeded Moses. Now, Israel in time became a monarchy where, you know, they're governed by, by a leader, by a king. Some of the kings were, were like the early men who really followed the will and the word of God, and some of them were not. Some of them were pitiable and, and were often judged by God. Now, the monarch, monarchy came about because the nation begged for a king. They wanted to be like the people around them. All of the laws in the Old Testament, all of those, those uh, uh, rituals, especially the dietary laws, all of those were meant to segregate Israel from the nations. Purposeful. Because they were to be holy unto the Lord, separated unto God. And so Israel now, they want to be like the people. Samuel records, or Moses records in 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 5, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. You're old. We're rejecting you and your sons. So Saul and David led as the kings of Israel. And here's a contrast. Saul, certainly not following the will of God. David, following the will of God, even in the midst of his sins. So much so that the Lord said of David, I find him to be a man after my own heart. So you see this contrast already. And listen. It, it, it really shows that you, you, you can be blessed by the Lord as a people, but not to the height 
of what it could be if you're not walking in the will of God. So the Lord blessed them under the, the, uh, the kingship, but certainly they never got to a place, they will in the future, but they never got to a place where the, the blessing was ultimate because they were tightly kept in the will of God. So you have these men, Saul and David, but an interesting commentary to Samuel is crucial when thinking about leadership. Samuel says in, in Sam, 1 Samuel 8, 7, man, I get excited about this stuff, right? So just bear with me with my little stuff because I really get excited about this. So the Lord says to Samuel, and we quote this a lot, but, but recognize the connection between God and leaders and ruling. Samuel, he says, and all the elders, I'm sorry, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. It's not simply you, Samuel. You are the one they see all the time, but it's not simply you. It's me. They are rejecting me from being king over them. So this first section, let me just sum it up real quickly in summary. God mediated his rulership, right, of his people before and after the establishment of Israel through men who were often imperfect, actually who were always imperfect. And leadership functions as a uh, plurality. It, it moved from Moses being by himself to a plurality, and even during the time of Christ, you had the Sanhedrin, which was the governing body of Israel, consisted of 71 uh, elders. And then leaders are ultimately accountable to God for their actions. Leaders are not accountable to anything less than God himself. And we have to always keep that in mind, that God is the one who will judge the actions of leaders when they're not in keeping with his perfect will for leaders. So transitioning, let's look at the church. When we come to the church, the structure of Israel is not altogether the same as the structure of the church. And, and, that, and for obvious reasons, right? For one, uh, Israel was secular and spiritual. The church is not secular. The church has, has no secular authority at all. But Israel did because the leaders of Israel, man, they had to make decisions about taxation, about war, about punishment of people. They, but the church can't do that. The church ha hasn't been given the authority by God to do that particular thing. However, the, the church obviously being a spiritual entity, is to represent God on the earth as just that, a spiritual entity. And the church also resembles Israel somewhat in terms of plurality, expanding that leadership of, of Moses into a, a plurality. Now, when we start talking about church leadership, there's no place better to go than 1 Peter chapter 3, and then in our study, the series that we're currently in, 
uh, Titus, especially Titus chapter 1. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 for a second, and uh, we're going to introduce you to a couple of verses that bring out some key terminology that helps us really grab this idea, church leadership. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 covers the character traits. Uh, Patrick covered those in the opening lesson, the opening sermon in Titus. So we're not going to talk about the character traits. However, I want you to look at the first verse. The first verse says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. It is a noble work he desires to do. Now, you notice he uses the word overseer. Some Bibles, King James uses the word bishop, but the Greek word is episcope. And this word, uh, well, let me, let me back up for a second. I got something in my note that I need to say, right? When we start talking about bishops, so we're all on the same sheet of music. Please try and put away from your mind someone who governs multiple churches or someone who, who is leader in a, in a Catholic diocese. None of that is supported in Scripture. So when we talk about bishop, when we talk about overseer, we're talking about the leaders of the church. And so when Timothy opens up with with, with giving these descriptions of an elder, he uses the word episcope, like I said, which is translated bishop or, or overseer, to help give some understanding about what, about some character trait, characteristic of leadership. And this speaks of the, the rulership of the leader, right? The word commonly uh, refers to a foreman or a superintendent, someone who supervises. So when he talks about bishop overseer, he's talking about a leader being one who rules, being one who oversees. The second word is found in, in Titus, Titus 1.5. So we went through Titus already. I want to back up and take a look at this particular word that he uses to describe the leader's through Titus. Verse 5 says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. Right? Because at that time, you typically had one church in the city. So we're talking about a church. So he's going into a church, and he's having to appoint elders. And he uses the word elder, presbyteros, totally different word from episcopate or episkopos. So, same people, different word. He tells them, he, he tells Titus, listen, it, this remains, or this is lacking. The church is incomplete in the eyes of God without leadership. The church is incomplete. And so, he dispatches Titus as his representative and tells Titus, appoint elders in every church. Complete what is lacking. Now, elders, presbyteros, like episcopae or episcopos, bishop, overseer, gives the idea of rulership, right? Elder, on the other hand, speaks to the gravity, the solemnity, the, the experience, the maturity, the wisdom of the person. And that's the word you most often hear 
or read throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, when it refers to leaders. The word elder, presbyteros. And the word literally, literally means an older man. But, like I said, spiritually, when, when you apply this to the leadership of the church, it's, it's speaking about the gravity, wisdom, maturity, and so forth and so on of the person himself. Now, Paul also, if you drop down to verse 5, he says, I'm sorry, verse 7, he says, for the, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, and so forth and so on. He uses another word, right? He says the overseer, the overseer is back to Bishop Episcopos. So here's what I'm saying. Right here in Titus, he tells Titus to appoint elders, and he uses two terms to describe these elders. He uses the term elder, presbyteros, and he uses the term uh, episkopos or overseer. And then the final term is the one that we typically hear in a church, pastor, right? Pastor or shepherd. This is the third term, and for this, we go to Ephesians 4.11. This is the only place where pastor is used in this context. So Ephesians 4.11, the Apostle Paul says, and he gave some, as he's talking about the people that God gave to the church uh, to, to benefit the church, these gifts. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Now the word pastor here is poimen. And uh, like I said, it, it, it is often used in the, in the scriptures as shepherd. Poiman speaks of a person who tends, who feeds, who, who uh, nurtures, if you will, the church of God. The, the, uh, the word poiman. Shepherd. Peter called uh, the Lord, the, well, the Lord Jesus himself called said that he was the good shepherd. He was the good poiman. And then Peter says of the Lord Jesus that he is the chief shepherd. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, 1 Peter 5, 4. So let's summarize that section real quickly, right? Three terms are used to describe leaders in a church, and those terms are always plural. When he, he said to Titus, I want you to appoint not an elder, not a pastor, not a bishop, not an overseer. He says, I want you to appoint elders in every church. So these terms, as I stated, represent just the, the, the different facets of what the elders do. Paul he addressed uh, Peter, I'm sorry. He addressed the elders as a fellow elder in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2, and he used all three of the words in this, in, in this short passage. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd, he says the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain. So in these two verses, Peter tells them 
He says, I'm an elder, and to the elders, I want you to shepherd. Poimeno, the verb form of poimen, shepherd the church of God, exercising oversight, episkopos, being an overseer. Two verses, Peter uses the same, he uses different words to describe uh, the same people. My go-to verse always is in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul, he's leaving, and he's not going to see these folks again. And he loves these people. They cried as he was leaving, but the apostle Paul wants to leave a message, so he calls the elders to himself. And verse 17, here's how he addresses them. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Presbyteros, plural. He called the elders of the church. He didn't call the pastor, right? He called the elders of the church. A team of people came to Paul, not one person. A team of people came to Paul, and then, man, if, after Paul talked about his legacy and what he'd been doing and how he declared the whole counsel of God and they're not going to see him again, and then he gets to verse 28, and he gives them a charge, a very important charge. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. They were elders in verse 17, now they're overseers. To shepherd, poimen, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Paul, talking to the same group of people, utilizes the terms that you're going to find throughout the New Testament to describe leadership within, within the church. Christians, just to give an example of how it all works, Christians are called by multiple terms throughout the scriptures, right? You can say that you're a Christian. You can say that you're a believer. You can say that you're a child of God, right? You can say that you're a saint even, because the scripture says that. Now, that's not each one of you is one of those. Each one of you is all of those. When we say you're a Christian, we're saying you're Christ-like, right? When we say you're a believer, we're referring to your faith, that you trust Jesus, when we, say, when we say that you're a saint, it means that you're set apart, set apart for God's use. When we say that you're a child of God, we speak of you being born of God, like 1 John, uh, John 1 chapter 12 verse says. But those terms all help to give a full appreciation of what it means to be a child of God. In the same way, these words give a full view of what it means to be an elder. So what it means to be a leader in the church is, first of all, you're, you're, you're characterized by one who has maturity, elder, who has wisdom, who has experience, who, ha who has understanding. And then as an overseer or bishop, you're characterized by one who rules and not lording it over, not that kind of rule but one who certainly oversees and affairs of the church. And then, finally, as the, uh, the shepherd, the pastor, it's characterized by your ability to care, to feed, to tend the flock of God. Leaders in, in the church.
Now, there's a distinction that I'd like to bring out. Um, when, it, when we go to spiritual gifts, we tend, this is where it gets foggy, right? Because the distinction is obviously seen in, in who we are and how we exercise our gifts, and we're not going to look the same. And sometimes these distinctions cause people to create separate roles, like the pastor, right? So in looking at leadership and spiritual gifts, I want to just touch on real quickly some of what the Scripture says about, about gifts and about how uh, maybe the leaders, what gifts they have that help leaders minister to the church of God. <clears throat> so in writing about spiritual gifts, Paul wrote, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportions of your faith. And then he goes on and lists a few more of those gifts, and then he says uh, leadership, to lead. So leaders obviously must have the gift of leadership. Otherwise, um, you're unqualified to lead, obviously, if you don't have the gift of leadership, right? And then 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 12 we find mentioned the gift of administration, teaching is there. But what's interesting about the gift of administration, the word is cabernesis. And the word literally means to steer a ship. And you can see where that applies to an overseer leading and guiding the affairs of the church. Now, obviously, there are other gifts that elders have encouragement, giving, all of those other gifts that are mentioned, elders may possess some of those, but all elders must possess the gift of leadership, the gift of administration, perhaps, and then this one, the gift of teaching and preaching. That kind of sets the tone, right? Teaching and preaching because it is through teaching and preaching that the will of God is communicated to the church. It's through teaching and preaching that the word of God is taught and it's, it's understood by the church through the teaching of those that God has uh, given the ability to do so, right? I want to read a few quotes from some leading commentaries on this, this ability to teach that leaders must be able to teach. Vines inserts, not merely a readiness to teach is implied, but the spiritual power to do so as the outcome of prayerful uh, meditation in the Word of God and the practical application of its truth to one's self. Linsky added, ability to teach means not merely a fair natural aptitude, but the qualification of having been taught. Barnes adds, Apt to teach, Greek word, didactic. This is capable of instructing or qualified for the office of a teacher of religion. As the principal business of a preacher of the gospel is to teach or to communicate to his fellow men the knowledge of the truth, the necessity of this qualification is obvious. No, no one should be allowed to enter the ministry who is not qualified to impart instruction to others on the, on the doctrines and the duties of religion, and no one should feel that he ought to continue in the ministry who has not 
industry and self-denial and the love of study enough to lead him constantly to endeavor to increase his knowledge that he may be qualified to teach others. A man who would teach a people must himself keep in advance of them on the subjects on which he would instruct them. I mean, simply said, you just have to be fully devoted to studying and learning so that you're always ahead, you're, you're always ready with the knowledge of God. MacArthur adds, with the elders lies the responsibility to preach and teach. They are to determine doctrinal issues for the church and have the responsibility of proclaiming the truth to the congregation. 1 Peter 3, 2 through 7, listing the spiritual qualifications of the overseer, gives only one qualification that relates to a specific function. He must be able to teach. All other qualifications are personal character traits. So, in summary, we, the elders at Genesis Church, Genesis Community Church, we believe that the Lord's design of the church is that it is led by a team of leaders. What we don't want you to think is that we have chosen an alternative model that there are several models that's acceptable by God, and we've chosen this one. No, we want you to know that we've chosen this one because we believe it to be the will of God and the plan of God for the church. I've gone through all these verses, and we've talked about just the three terms that magnify the position and makes it obvious that there are a plurality being mentioned. Strock describes church leadership in this way. Shared leadership should not be a concept, a new concept to a Bible-reading Christian. Shared leadership is rooted in the Old Testament institution of the elders of Israel and in Jesus' founding of the apostolate. It is a highly significant and often overlooked fact that our Lord did not appoint one man to lead his church. He has personally appointed and trained 12 men. Jesus Christ gave the church plurality of leadership. So here's a fair question. Why so many models then? That's a fair question. If the scripture presents it this way and we all read it, why do we have so many models? Why do we have churches where there are no elders. There's just one pastor. Why do we have churches where they're governed by a group of elders uh, and, and trustees and then one pastor? We have all these various models of church leadership. Why do we have them all, right? If we all read the same Bible and we can plainly read the plurality of elders as they are being discussed. I remember asking a guy who was a pastor, and he and I had this conversation, really good friend. I said, so when you start looking for the qualifications of the pastor, where do you go? Where in the scriptures are you going to find the qualification for this role that I'm talking about? And obviously, there's nowhere you can go and find the qualification of the leaders in the church. So Why? Here, let me give you, I wrote something that I want to read every word of it because I think it speaks to this issue of why there's so many. 
Because I don't know. I mean, your, your guess is as good as mine. But these are just my thoughts as I'm putting this together. Why other models are used is up for grabs. But we can never lose sight of our propensity to operate in the flesh. Even when we have the best of intentions. And listen, one of the things I have learned on my journey with the Lord over the years is that I am never above being corrected. Truth is what I am learning to value even above my own ego and the pride that comes with that. And even with, with that awareness, right, even with that awareness, I am also aware of the fact that I will operate in the flesh at times. Frankly, we all do and will do until we're completely sanctified. And that's not going to happen until we die or until the Lord returns. If plurality is the will of God, only the flesh can lead otherwise. So, as I conclude, think about this verse through the background that I just gave you. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. See, now you can confidently embrace that because you know that it's not the leaders of Genesis Community Church ultimately to whom you submit. It's God himself. And if you get nothing else out of all of this, that really is the point, right? Now, apart from the fact that it is Scripture that we have a plurality, I want to give you some practical benefits that the church reaps when it has a plurality of elders. And we'll end on this note. Number one, the church is more apt to take on the personality of Jesus, the chief shepherd, than the personality of one single leader. Number two, mutual accountability is a strong deterrent to church leaders falling in sin. Number three, a plurality of church leaders makes rebuking an elder possible. The scripture says, if an elder sins, rebuke him publicly. If you don't have a plurality, who does the rebuking? A plurality affords continuity of church's mission with the loss of a leader. So many churches fail because they're led by this personality. Church takes on that personality. Then this person decides the Lord calls him to another church, or he dies, or he just decides, I don't want to pastor anymore. I can't do this stuff, right? What happens to the church then? You go through this frantic scramble to try to get someone. And the person you bring in, all you know about them is what's on paper or what someone else says. When you have a plurality, nothing is lost. You continue on with the current mission. A plurality of leaders has a positive impact on church doctrines. Here's what we've done as the elders. We decided we're going to canvas all of the leaders in the church. The elders, the deacons, community group leaders, teachers, we're going to get a comprehensive doctrinal statement. And we've done this. Get a doc comprehensive doctrinal statement. And then we're going to study those statements 
for where we differ so we can commit to studying so we don't differ. It is, it is really a sad thing, I think, in Christianity when we settle for anything less than the truth. Scott made a statement, a profound statement, definitely deep insight. Every now and then he does that. But this was a good one. So, so Scott says, I mean, think about this. Scott says, there's only one truth. But how often do we operate that way? That there's only one truth. I was talking to someone and they were talking about non-essentials. And I said, okay, so non-essentials. When it comes to salvation, there are things that are pertinent. You can't have salvation without it. But you're a Christian. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about this book. What in this book is not essential? And in fact, Russ said, just open the pages, tear it out. If, what is, there's nothing in here that's not essential. And we're not even equipped to determine what is not essential because we're incomplete, right? So everything in the book is essential. And when you come up to an elder or a teacher or a leader in this church and you ask a question about some doctrinal issue, you want some continuity. And, or, or, and even if we settle on one or two that we can live with, you want to know that we've given it time, that we've studied, that we've... But if you don't have a plurality, you have the one person who determines this is the doctrine for the church and you're limited by that one person's understanding, maturity, and apprehension of the Word of God. Plurality adds more wisdom and burden sharing. How many pastors have just died away because the work is just too tough? Being a team leader, I'm sorry, being team shepherds, because we're under shepherds, right? can remind us constantly that there is only one chief shepherd. And it makes us think that way. That's what you get, and, and plenty more, and I'm sure you can think of some. That's what we get from a plurality. Praise God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.